Well, good evening to all of you. Hope you had a good day in whatever you endeavored to do. And we end the day uh, with kind of an exclamation point of worship. I don't know any better way to end the day than to be with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and worship as we have and sing some songs together and praise God and pray to Him. And then take a few minutes and open up this book that we have from Him that will help us all live as we should live. <clears throat> Light the fire. I think the fire of summer has been lit. Woo! All of a sudden it got warm, didn't it? Open your Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. <clears throat> I want to talk about tonight, I want to talk to you about sacred marriage. I want to talk a little bit about this very special, albeit brief, earthly relationship that God has set in place for us. Sacred marriage. But we're going to use some scriptures tonight that we normally don't use and see if we can make some application. That will help us. And I want to begin tonight in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. And here's the phrase I want you to notice. I read from the New American Standard, and it says, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Some translations render that. Let us perfect holiness out of reverence for God. You say, what does that have to do with marriage? Everything. Fictitious story, but we'll call his name Greg. And Greg walks out to his car. He gets out his keys, he hits the unlock button on his key fob, nothing happened. He hit it again, nothing happened. That's odd, it wouldn't work. Now he was able to take his key and get into the vehicle the old-fashioned way. But when he did, his car wouldn't start. And his gas gauge read empty, he had just filled it up that morning. In fact, as Greg began to notice, nothing in the vehicle was working properly. Fact is, it had to be towed to the dealership. And the mechanic comes back with a diagnosis and says to Greg, you've got a bad BCM, kind of a, a basic control module. It's kind of the computer brain of your car. And so if it goes bad, nothing in your car is going to work. Now, Greg could have insisted no, I want you to fix my door locks. I want you to fix my gas cage. I want you to fix my remote control. I want you to fix all of these individual items. But Greg was smart enough to understand that all of those individual things were mere symptoms of a much bigger issue. I wonder when it comes to marriage, I wonder how many times we focus on the symptoms instead of the basic control module 
So here's a, here's a couple and they come in and they're having issues and so they say, you know, we need to, we need to work on improving communication. Well, okay, but I'll tell you what that is. That's a symptom. Another couple says, we need to get better at handling conflict. Conflict resolution. Okay, but that's a symptom. Somebody else says, well, we need to get better at, at showing one another appreciation and, and more affection to one another. Okay, but that's a symptom. And we can spend all of our time focusing on the symptoms. Or we can take a step back and start focusing on the basic control module. And the basic control module for the Christian is a spiritual focus. It's a spiritual motivation. It is 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Let us perfect holiness because we have reverence for God. I don't know what you think that means in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means God comes first. So here's my question. Would marriage be included in that? Or would marriage be excluded from that? You see, what it comes down to is this. You are either a God-centered spouse or a spouse-centered spouse. And here's the difference. A spouse-centered spouse will act nice toward her husband as long as he acts nice towards her. A spouse-centered spouse will go out of his way for his wife as long as she remains agreeable and affectionate. But does it ever occur to us that God demands more from His people? And I think Paul is hitting on it here, right here in verse 1, when he says, let us perfect holiness in our lives because we have reverence for God. In other words, the number one motivating factor in everything we do, everything we do, including this earthly relationship called marriage, has to come back to my reverence and appreciation and love for God. It affects everything. You know, I am not called to love my wife because she is holier than anybody else. I'm not called to love my wife because she always makes me happy. I'm not called to love my wife because things between us, every hour of every day, is always so romantically ooey and gooey. I'm not called to love my wife for any of those reasons. I am called to love my wife out of reverence for God. And that's what Paul is reminding us in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Every decision I make in life, every attitude I have in life, Every behavior I manifest in life, in any relationship, in any situation, comes down to one question. One holy motivation. Is this honoring God? 
Is marriage exempt from that? Or would marriage be included in that? Do we treat symptoms? Or do we take a real good look at the basic control module for the Christian? So let's spend just a few moments tonight and talk about sacred marriage. I've come across all kinds of quotes about marriage. But I'm going to give you my number one all-time favorite. Remember when you were in school and you studied about this guy named Socrates? Remember Socrates? He's the author of my all-time favorite marriage quote. Here it is. By all means, get married. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. Socrates. Now you know a little more about Socrates. You ever think about why God didn't design this marriage thing to be easier? It sounds easy. It, it looks easy when you're on the outside looking in. My wife went to a wedding not long ago, and I don't know why I didn't go. I, I don't know. I came up with some husband excuse. I had to change the air and the tires or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, she goes to this wedding, and she comes back. I said, how was it? She said, oh, it was really nice. I said, I was standing in the receiving line, and I, I finally got to Lisa, and I, 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 I gave her just a, a real big hug. And she said, you know what she said to me? She said to me, oh, Julie, I'm so glad. The hard part's over. I said, what'd you say? She said, I said, bless your heart. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> it looks so easy, doesn't it? You ever watch a Hallmark movie? Now, you men don't have to admit this, okay? You don't have to. You ever watch a Hallmark movie? Our adopted daughter, Leah, discovered the Hallmark Channel, and if she didn't come home on Sunday afternoons during football season and want to watch a Hallmark movie, and she'd say, hey, Dad, watch this movie with me, you know? And I'd say, yeah, okay. So we'd watch a Hallmark. They're all the same. Every single one of them is the same. You can write, I can write the script. There's this beautiful couple, and they meet under improbable conditions, they fall in love, they fall out of love, and in the last ten minutes they fall back in love. And if it's a Christmas Hallmark movie, which runs from July to June, at the end of the movie when they fall back in love, they kiss and the snow falls every time. It's not as easy as it looks in the movie. And one of the reasons it's not as easy as it looks in the movies is because this romantic love kind of thing has very little elasticity. You can't stretch romantic love very far because if you start stretching romantic love, it shatters because romantic love tends to be, well, it's about me. It's about me. But mature love, holy love, stretches further than, than you would ever think possible. It has to. Because when two sinful and selfish people 
start living together as one, there's going to be trouble. Unless each embrace the higher and highest motivation of all. Reverence for God in everything we do. You think God has a higher motivation? A higher purpose for matrimony than two people just living together and sharing the same mailbox and sharing the same kitchen table and sharing the same bedroom? You think maybe God has a higher purpose than that? You think maybe it's not your happiness God has in mind as much as it is your holiness? Now, I'm not saying happiness and holiness are mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that. But when you and I look at this marriage relationship through the lens of God's purpose, you get a whole new perspective. And the new perspective you get is, this isn't about me. It's not about me. You see, the real purpose, when you get right down to it, the real purpose in this one-on-one lifetime relationship is to draw me closer to the one who brought us together. And I'll tell you why that's important. (coughs) It's important because my relationship with God is going to last a lot longer than my relationship with my spouse. My relationship with my spouse is that long. My relationship with God is forever. And that's why just working on the symptoms won't work in the long run. Now, we, we, we try, we should. You can make your home more pleasant and peaceful. You need to do that. You can, you can look for ways to keep the romance alive. You need to do that. You can show kindness and respect and courtesy. And as a Christian, you should do that. But if your relationship with God isn't what it ought to be, if we're not very careful, we just start sticking Band-Aids on symptoms. But the problem is we look for something in another human being that ultimately and eternally only God can provide. And I think that's one of the reasons marriage dissatisfaction runs so high. It runs so high because we expect too much. Does anybody remember back in the 1980s? Does anybody remember the old 486 computers? Anybody? My first computer was a 486 computer. A few years ago, we were in Washington, D.C., and we went through the Smithsonian, and our son Luke was with us, and we were going through the Smithsonian, and he says, Dad, look, there's your computer. Now, folks, you know you're getting old when your stuff starts showing up in the Smithsonian, you know? But the old 486 computer was a great computer in its day. The problem with the 486 wasn't the 486. It's not the computer that the computer's bad, but if you try to run today's programs on an old 486, it's not going to work. 
because you're asking it to give more than it can give. You think sometimes we do that with marriage? That we ask of marriage to give us more than it was ever intended to give. In other words, if I'm seeking the largest percentage of my lifetime satisfaction and fulfillment from my spouse, maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe I'm asking too much. Because I was created and you were created with an eternal craving for a relationship with God. Your wife isn't God. Your husband isn't God. There's only one. There's only one who could fill that eternal ache in your soul. And when we finally understand that, this basic control module, when we finally get it, then we will have a new appreciation for this person with whom we have embarked upon this very short earthly journey called marriage. Now then, you ever notice as you go through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you ever noticed how often Scripture talks about God's relationship with people, but He does it in terms of matrimony. He talks about His relationship with people in marriage terms. There's hundreds of verses. Isaiah 62 and verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God rejoices over you. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 15, Jesus talks about Himself as the Bridegroom. In Matthew 20, uh, chapter 22, God compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet. In Revelation 19, 7, He talks about the wedding of the Lamb. And He says, the bride has made herself ready. Why is He doing this? Why is He putting all of this relationship talk in a marriage context to help us understand? He's putting it in words and giving illustrations that we can get, that we can understand. That's why in the Old Testament, when God talks about the breakdown of spiritual fidelity in the nation of Israel, God depicts it in terms of marital infidelity. Like Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, listen carefully to the words, I gave Israel her divorce, and I sent her away because of her adulteries. He uses language and illustrations we understand. In Ephesians 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, you see again the, the, the holy that is in matrimony. Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. I was talking with a guy the other day, and he was just—he was just. This was the only. This was what. This was his hang-up. All he wanted to talk about was the, the submission principle. He, he goes to this this verse, and and he just kept wanting to camp there. And I said, oh, "Hold on a minute." And we went over to First Corinthians thirteen. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, we started going down the list. I said, "How are you doing with those?" And he said to me, I don't know how to do those things. 
But you know, back here in Ephesians chapter 5, and I said, wait a minute. I said, I'll tell you what, let's go back to Ephesians 5, and let's go back to the verse that you missed before that one. Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Because what you have in Ephesians 5 are the A and the B and the C's of marriage, the ABC's. Ephesians 5.21 says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Is marriage exempt from that, verse 21? Or would marriage be included in that? You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things my wife's a lot smarter about than I am. And there's a lot of things that if I'm smart, I'm going to listen to her and I'm going to submit to her judgment on some areas because she knows more about it than I do. That's just how that works. And so the A part of this is in verse 21. Be subject to one another. Put each other first in the fear of Christ, out of reverence for God, which says the same thing 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says. Then the B part, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. God has an order in everything He has made, in everything He has done, there is order. And then the C part that explains the B part, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. And then as you begin to read the verses after that, like verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave of Himself for her, or verse 28, Husbands, love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church. God takes holy matrimony and He talks about it in terms, compares it to the holy union between Jesus and His church. I mean, how can you not read passages like that and not come away with a higher understanding, a higher appreciation for the sacredness of this relationship. It's impossible. It's so plain. Or go back to where we started, but this time instead of 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. I said we're going to use some verses that sometimes we don't use. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. I underline that part. To be pleasing to Him. That's my life ambition. That's your life ambition. Now here's the question. Is marriage excluded from that? Or is marriage a part of that? You see, the first purpose of marriage, beyond just the sexual expression, beyond the bearing of children, beyond companionship, is not what most people think. It's not about my happiness. That's not the idea. Because what he's saying in verse 9 is, everything in life, everything comes down to this. I want to live to be pleasing to God. I want to glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 9.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think marriage is included in that. Or come on down to verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all so that they might live 
those who live, no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You don't live for self. You live for Him. Is marriage excluded from that? Or is marriage included in that? See, God in these verses is, is, is demanding something of me. God is saying, I want you to look at your life I want you to look at the relationship you have with your spouse, but I want you to look at it and see it the way I see it. Because God says the way I see it, it's not about your happiness and it's not about your glory. He says it's about mine. It's about honoring me through this relationship. And if that's not enough, look at verse 18. Now he says in verse 18, All these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When Paul says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, I think Paul's talking specifically about the apostles and the commission that was given to them, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But I'm going to back up a little bit and say, is not the very heart of the gospel, is not the very core work of the church inherent in the idea of the ministry of reconciliation? Is not our mission to share the good news? What is the good news? That man can be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's the good news. Reconciliation. You say, what does that have to do with marriage? All right, I want you to think about something. A lot of times when two people can't get along and they go their separate ways, they come up with a reason. And the reason is, think about that word reconcile. Reconcile, reconcile. Irreconcile. Irreconcilable what? Different irreconcilable differences. And here's the point. If our homes are fraught with fighting and animosity and anger and distrust and contempt for one over the other, then all of a sudden my marriage contradicts my message. What is my message? My message is reconciliation. And if my marriage contradicts my message, I have sabotaged the goal of my life. The goal of my life is to live pleasing to Him in verse 9 and share the message of reconciliation to others. That's why a marriage that is God-honoring puts flesh on the picture of reconciliation. Because a marriage that is God-honoring will model forgiveness and sacrifice and selfless love. What do you think is the basis of God's reconciliation with us? If it's not forgiveness and sacrifice and selfless love. In other words, what God asks us to do as husbands and wives in regard to forgiveness and sacrifice and selfless love is nothing more than a little tiny taste of what He does for you and me. Your relationship with your spouse 
will either be a stumbling block or a stepping stone to the gospel message itself. I mean, how can I tell my kids that my promise of reconciliation is secure if they look at me and see that my promises don't mean one thing? How can that be? Now, there's an exception to that. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul writes and he says, As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You know, you learn a hard lesson in life that there's only one person you can control, and that's you. So, for example, if you have a spouse that is bound and determined to be morally unfaithful, you know what you can do about that? Not a thing. Not a thing. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, where God allows the unfaithfulness of the one to break the bonds of holy matrimony and the innocent one to put the guilty one away. But not as a first response. Not as a loophole to get out of this situation, but as a last resort. I heard somebody say to me one time, they said to me one time, I don't think there's such a thing as an innocent person. Innocent party. I don't think there's such a thing as an innocent party. And I thought about that, and I thought, what you're really saying is, I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect party. But the issue isn't perfection. The issue is never perfection. Because there are no perfect people. The issue is about glorifying God in my life. And the issue is, the question that you have to ask in any situation, whether it be this one or any other, what is it that God would have me to do? And what God would have me to do, what God would want me to do, is to try and reconcile. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not always possible. And sometimes that means having to make hard decisions, especially when spiritual lives hang in the balance. So I think that's important to understand. But we live in a culture in which people just throw marriages away with frightening regularity. And spouse bashing becomes a pastime with some. And we make promises with no intention of keeping them. But in contrast to that, here is a Christian couple who works very hard at maintaining a God-glorifying relationship you don't think they command attention? They command attention and should command attention because our lives and our relationships and our marriages become platforms of evangelism for the gospel of Christ. How many of you have been married 30 years? Raise your hand. You got any 30 years? 40. 50. Raise your hand. 60. I'm going to keep going. 70. I took care of that. Okay. I did that at one place. I got 70. This, this guy was sitting back on the back row, back where you're sitting right there. And he got 70. Raise his hand. Man. 80. Raised his hand. 90 raised his hand. I said, 100. He raised his hand. I said, brother, you've been married 100 years? He said, no, but it feels like it. 
And I thought to myself, I don't want to be in that car going home. Good grief. You know, it's easy. It's easy sometimes for younger people to think that folks have been married 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. You know, they haven't gone through, you know, they haven't had it as hard as we're having it. But you and I know that's not so. Folks are together 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years because they've come to experience reconciliation. And they've come to know about God's love and the power of forgiveness and the power of sacrifice. And they are fleshing out, they are living out the gospel message of reconciliation in their home. Did you ever think about marriage in, those, in, in, in that way? Now, let me leave you with one more thing. We're done. The last thing I want to share with you tonight is this. Maybe you haven't thought about marriage this way. You married. You married God's child. You married God's child. Your spouse isn't just your spouse. Your spouse is a daughter of God. Your spouse is a son of God. Your spouse is a child of God. Now, if you want to talk about in human fleshly terms, I, I hope you understand that if you want to get on the good side of a parent, then you'd be good to their kids. But if you want to make a parent angry, be a bully. Start picking on this child. Be mean to them. And you will fire up parental righteous indignation in a hurry. You think God's any different? Zechariah 2 and verse 8, he says plainly, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. There you have it. You married God's child. So it's not just about me and my attitude toward this person over here. It's about me and my attitude toward a child of God. That changes everything. And I'll tell you something else I've thought about. We spend time thinking about the, the fatherhood of God. Jesus said when we pray, pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Okay. Well, take that analogy and extend it out. If God is the father of the woman I marry, do you know what that makes him to me? He's my father-in-law. <laughs> and if I fail to respect my wife and I demean her, and I mistreat her and I speak condescendingly to her, I'm going to court trouble with my father-in-law. Peter says that in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 when he says, I am to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that my prayers will not be hindered. My relationship with God is connected to the way I treat her. That's how important that is. I think we fail to grasp sometimes how much God loves this person to whom we're married. I mean, He designed our spouse as a one of a kind. He came and reconciled him or her to Him through the death of His only begotten Son. And that makes, that makes your spouse especially special. You know, as a human father, as a human father, 
I would pray that my kids would marry somebody who would love them like I love them. And yet as their father, who spent a lot of time with each one of them, every one of my kids falls short of perfection because their daddy does. And every one of my kids has quirks. And every one of my kids has limitations. And every one of my kids have sinned like their daddy had. So, I would pray that my kids would marry people and they would have a spouse who would be kind to them and be understanding with them and be patient with them and would love them through all of that. I would cringe to think that they would marry somebody who would abuse them or be cruel or hurt them in some kind of way. Now here's the kicker. God is fully aware that your spouse has faults. God is fully aware that your spouse has quirks. God is fully aware that your spouse has had sins and and, and all of those things. God knows all of that. So He's asking you and me to be as forgiving and to be as patient with their faults as we would want our kids' spouses to be with them. That's how that works. So think about how you've treated your spouse this past week. Is that how you would want your daughter treated by her spouse? Is that how you would want your son treated by his spouse? You see, that ring that you wear doesn't mean that you just married somebody. You married God's daughter. You married God's son. You married a child of God. And he's watching every day how you and I treat his child. Sacred marriage. We were talking at lunch today. I don't remember how the subject came up. But we were talking about chocolate pies. Y'all remember? I'm a chocolate pies. My wife is a great cook. 99.9% of the time, she is a great cook. There was one occasion, several years ago, about, about 10 years ago, there was one occasion. And, and, and there was some situation that we were celebrating. I don't remember what it was. She said, listen, Luke's off from school. I think he was about 17 at the time. She said, Luke's off school tomorrow. You guys go out and play golf and have a great day and have fun. And when you come back home, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a fantastic supper for you all. And we're going to celebrate and, and all of that. So the next day, he and I went out and played golf and just hung out all day long. Had a blast. We came back to the house. She had cooked this fantastic supper. It was wonderful. And we cleared the dishes away. And she said, I've made you guys, I've made you guys a homemade chocolate pie. And on the counter, there's this chocolate pie. And it's got the, 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 the whipping on top. The What do you call that? The meringue. Yeah, thank you. It's the, the, the meringue is all whipped up. It looked fake. I mean, the whole thing looked fake. Oh, man, it's going to be good. 
So she cut a piece and she brought it over and she set it in front of me. And she went back to cut the next piece for Luke. Now, you've got to understand something about my wife. She is a stickler for manners. And she has taught me and she has taught all of the children that in situations where a hostess is serving you, you don't just dig right in, you wait until the hostess has served everybody and sits down or the hostess gives you permission, whatever the case may be. So I'm sitting there looking at this chocolate pie thinking, oh man, I can't wait to dig into this. And so while she's back over there cutting the second piece, cutting Luke's piece, I take the tip of my fork, you know, the very tip of the fork, and I kind of just barely touch that chocolate because I thought that doesn't count. That doesn't violate anything. And so I put my fork in there, got a little bit of the chocolate, and took a taste. It was horrible. And I realized this didn't have any sugar in it. It was bad. It looked great. It was bad. And I started to say something. And then I thought, I got a 17-year-old boy sitting here. And when he takes his first bite, he's not going to take a little bite. This is worth watching. I said nothing. And so she puts the plate down in front of Luke. And she says, go, go ahead, dig in, boys, dig in. And I watched that kid take that fork, get a big old piece of chocolate pie in that fork, and stick it in his mouth. And I watched as his eyes began to water and as his cheeks puffed out. And suddenly there was this, how do I say, chocolate explosion everywhere. And Julie's mortified. She, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she took a bite. She said, oh, no. I, she knew what she did. She, she, she grabbed his plate. She grabbed my plate. And I grabbed them back from her. And I put Luke's plate back. She said, you're not eating it. No, you're not eating this. This is terrible. I'm so sorry. And she, I said, just wait a minute. I turned to Luke and I said, do exactly what I do. And I took my fork and I raked off that meringue. He raked off his meringue. And I'm here to tell you folks tonight, my wife makes the best meringue pie you have ever put in your mouth. The moral of the story is this. When it comes to marriage, not every day is going to be sweet. There will be days of bitterness. There will be days of hardship. There will be days of trial and trouble and everything in between. And there will be some days you just have to eat the meringue and love every bite of it. May God help us to use the relationships that He gives us as a way to promote His Son and the message of the gospel of reconciliation. If you owe a duty to Him tonight because you're not a Christian, you can be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins tonight. Or if you owe a duty to Him because you're out of duty with Him. You're not walking correctly. You can, you can straighten that out tonight. I know these folks. They're going to pray with you and they're going to love you back to health. They're going to help you. Why don't you come while we stand and sing. There's a fountain bridges for you and me. Let us raise always to There's a fountain of love from the source above. And